0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: So um, to continue our
0: exploration of uh, poetry and practice or the poetry of practice, maybe I'll share something that um, John Brunn, who's a, created a collection of mindfulness poems, I, None of the poems that I have been sharing are in this collection, but he's um, a mindfulness teacher, I believe. And he writes that poetry presents a powerful way to disrupt the habitual momentum of the mind, its automatic reactions and obsessive self-concerns. And uh, he continues saying, to fully enter a poem, we must first stop and step away from the more immediate demands of life and engage in an imaginative activity that has no obvious practical value. So I appreciate his bringing in this way in that to uh, enter a poem is where we have to stop or interrupt the normal way of thinking or the usual way of doing whatever it is we do, and to engage in an imaginative activity So that if, right, the poems do require a certain imagination, especially ones that have a lot of imagery. And then I like that uh, John Prem includes, it has no obvious practical value. Yeah, right? So often we're concerned with what's practical. But, and lastly, this is the last thing I'll say from John Prem. He writes, more importantly, we must shift out of our everyday consciousness, the speedy mind wrapped in its self-centered stories and projections. But usually our minds are, you know, trying to make us happy and avoid difficulties and stave off pain and difficult emotions. But if I were to stretch John Brehm's uh, discussion about poetry, I would say that um, maybe to fully enter a poem, he's talking about it, is to interrupt the momentum of what the mind usually does but what if we say to fully enter a poem is to enter the temple of the heart rather than being in the thinking of the mind and maybe in this way the form
1: of today's offering also kind of um is related to the content the fact that it's a poem
0: so I'll read this poem again, one that I just dropped into the guided meditation. The title is After Reading What's in the Temple by Tom Barrett I Considered His Question. And I'll unpack that a little bit uh, after I read the poem. The poet is Rosemary Traumer. I, th- I just love Rosemary Traumer's poems. I She has a um, a lot of whimsy, and uh, and she's a Buddhist practitioner as well, and it kind of shines through
1: in her poetry. So here's the poem. In the secret temple of my heart was an altar
0: with nothing on it. I love nothing, the pure potential of it. Sometimes when others journeyed here, I sense they were surprised perhaps even sorry for me, as if it would be better with a lotus or a cross or a star or a figurine or a photo of something, someone or a stone, always something.
1: I tried, in fact, to put things on the altar, but no thing let itself stay.
0: There was a day when in a single moment the altar had
1: everything on it.
0: And by everything, I mean everything. Every bee, every stick, every plastic bag and beetle, every crushed empty can, every crumpled shirt, every door handle, compass, broken thermometer, apple, trash can, tree, everything.
1: And it was so beautiful, I wept for hours. Oh, the pure potential of it. And then that altar
0: was no longer in some secret temple in my heart, but everywhere. Everywhere a place to worship. Everything a prayer waiting to be heard, to be touched. And inside, the most beautiful nothing. Not even an altar, which is oddly everything. I can't say how. Sometimes... When I am quiet enough, I notice it.
1: Sometimes when I get out of the way, I fall all the way in. So this poem, that's called What's in the Temple by Tom Barrett, because we've kind of like entered into a
0: conversation between two poets. Rosemary Chalmers responding to what Tom Barrett wrote. And Tom Barrett's poem includes this these lines, if you had a temple in the secret spaces of your heart, what would you worship there? What would you bring to sacrifice? And in this poem, Tom Barrett's poem, he also includes this lines: we don't build many temples anymore. Maybe we learned that the sacred can't be contained. So this question, what what do you worship? What do you sacrifice? And Rosemary Trimer, her response is to say that she's not making these distinctions. That as soon as we designate something as sacred, then everything else by definition becomes profane. And of course, you know, our, our minds make these distinctions. But. If we are saying something sacred, then saying it's like spiritually significant and treated with reverence and respect. And there's certain rules or norms about how we interact with them. So if something is sacred, it's kind of like implicit. in this also is this idea that this will help me find more freedom. This will help me find more peace. This will help me find more ease.
1: But of course, Implicit in that is everything else that isn't sacred. The the
0: the profane, those things are activities that don't have any spiritual significance. They're the ordinary, the everyday, the secular. And implicit in
1: that is like, oh, this won't help me find more freedom. Oh, this is, you know, an obstacle. And Rosemary Traumer, in this poem, she's pointing to what if we stop making those distinctions? Then everything becomes sacred, even the ugly, the unwanted. Everything becomes connected to beauty and truth. Even the very ordinary, these things that we tend to dismiss or disregard or just not even notice. Rosemary Trauma includes in her poem, like, every crumpled shirt, every door
0: handle, compass, broken thermometer, apple, trash can, tree. (laughs) Like, in my mind, I'm just imagining that the poet is just sitting there and just kind of, like, looking
1: around and just naming, you know, what's there in that visual experience. But there's a way in which we label things. It's like you know, limits them because it makes it this and not that, which of course is true.
0: But it also maybe undermines that sense that meditation of practice is about being present for whatever is arising. And just by our folding it into our practice, whatever the experience is, is a way that we
1: find more freedom. So what happens if we stop labeling things? And I know
0: this is um, contrary to what um, practice instructions are. And to be sure, it's very helpful to label, but to make note of things. But what if there's a way that we can... Be with an experience without reifying it, without limiting it, without somehow like making it permanent. And I first discovered this the very first time I ever entered some or heard some Buddhist teachings. One of the teachers was in a yoga studio, (laughs) gave this expression. They were holding up an object. For them, it was a, a... a pen, but in the same way, I'm holding up a striker, a striker for the bell. I'm calling it a striker, so, you know, it is a striker. That's how it can be used. But maybe it's also a back scratcher, something that can help you reach a place in your back. Or what if it's uh, somebody you wanted to, like, scare an intruder or something, and you can throw this object, or and it would be... I don't know, something, a weapon or something. Or maybe if um, it's got taped to my hand, then it would become like a splint. You know, I'm just making up all these things, right? But that this one object, as soon as we call it a striker, it's
1: limited. It's just this. It's not all those other things. So to be sure, labels are helpful
0: and important, and we need them, and we use them, and this is what naturally happens, the mind does. But what if we softened all these labels, sacred, profane, bell-striker, back-scratcher?
1: And if we are stopping making these distinctions between sacred and profane, then there is no longer a maker of the distinctions.
0: There's no longer an entity that's at the center that's assigning things sacred or profane. There's no longer something that's here like, oh, yes, this is good, this is bad, this will help me in my spiritual life, this won't. So this idea of making something sacred or profane revolves around a
1: center the center that's a me or mine, this will help me or this won't help me. What if there's no center? What if there's just experiences without a center? And I think this is what the poet is pointing to when she writes, sometimes when I get out of the way, I fall all the way in. And this is real freedom. This is a real deep freedom. And I know this is a paradox about
0: making labels or distinctions and not making them. But this is part of the paradox of
1: practice and maybe the art of practice. So this idea of softening, lessening this, making the distinction between what goes in the temple and what's outside of the temple. What if everything is ordinary? What if everything is extraordinary? Thank you. Thank you for your practice. Maybe what would it be like today to notice everything in a way that isn't dismissive? Not in a way that we have to
0: furtively, and you know, always be mindful of everything, but just um, to be with
1: whatever the moment brings us, whatever the moment, whatever is arising in the moment. Thank you, and... See you tomorrow.